Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 5. If you go to the Islamic, I'm going to use an Islamic example this morning because that's what was in the New York Times the other day. If you go to the Islamic world, you find out, contrary to press reports in the West, that most of the Islamic world consists of very sane, uh, sober, intelligent, educated, articulate people who have a deep faith and who are living very uh, honorable and respectable lives. On the fringes, you get a rabid religious fundamentalism which is exhibiting the the symptoms of uh, you know the reemergence of the primitive sacred and so on likewise in the west m- most of us quote unquote individuals are managing somehow to do okay we're the 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 idea that we are individuals somehow still works because we're we find ourselves in a reasonably uh, reasonably uh, 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 supportive social web and so on, but there are more and more people, particularly young, who f- who are drifting out from that to the extent that individualism has cut its connection to the Christian tradition. It begins to uh, lose its moorings, its ontological moorings, and the ultimate uh, result of losing those ontological moorings is nihilism. I would just put, um, this is very sh- kind of a shortcut way of talking, but so if you will, uh, what I'm trying to set up here as a kind of generalization is in the non-Western world, on the fringes of the non-Western world, a revival of the primitive sacred. It's on the fringes of the Western world too. It's the manhunt in Europe that uh, that Eisenberger talks about. It's the manhunt that's happening in various places in our own culture. Uh, but m- more noticeably, and with more religious, uh, of, uh, and with more of its religious apparatus in place in the non-Western world, in the Western world, nihilism. Last week, I think I said that when the Enlightenment cut its connection to the to the Christian tradition, it experienced the supernova of modern humanism, and in the late twentieth century, it's experiencing the collapse of that supernova into the black hole of postmodern nihilism. So we have postmodern nihilism. The West has postmodern nihilism. The East, so to speak, not the East, the non-West has revivals of the primitive sacred. Now, that's completely overdrawn. Uh, But in a general sense, I think we can see those two responses. Now, here's the point to make about postmodern nihilism which seems like, why are we talking about it? It's such a small phenomenon. It is a small phenomenon, but it's, the question is not how big it is right now. And its question is not even how big it's going to be. I think it's going to be a lot bigger. But the question is, what does it mean? You see, because what it means, even if it doesn't get that much bigger, if it means something fundamental, if it has a profound meaning, if it emerges for reasons that, if we understood them, we would better understand ourselves even though we are not in danger of becoming nihilist. Then we should study it. You see what I'm saying? And I think the development of postmodern nihilism is the direct result of the mistake, of the mistaken 
understanding of individualism. The fact that individualism was cut off from the, from the New Testament and from the revelation that really made it possible and that postmodern nihilism is a result of that. Even if it doesn't get much bigger, I think it probably will get bigger, even if none of us are threatened by it, nevertheless, if there's something, if, if, there's, if some reflection on postmodern nihilism would tell us about the condition of our lives, we should do it. And I think it, I think it can. And the way, to, the way to begin with postmodern nihilism is to realize that nihilism is a religious phenomenon. Once we realize that, all, all kinds of things start to fall into place. Nihilism only happens in the West. We have to, these are little obvious points, but when you say them, things begin to clarify. There, there's no non-Western nihilism. Any non-Western nihilism is a result of the, the exportation of Western nihilism. You see, it doesn't exist any place other than the West. Nihilism is religious. That's the most important thing to know about it. It's, I, would, I would define nihilism as the religious experience of meaninglessness. The religious experience of meaninglessness. Not just that my life is meaningless, but that the meaninglessness of my life is a, is a numinous fact, and I must witness to it. You see? The, the need to witness on behalf of that meaninglessness. Uh, nihilists are, are evangelical. You see? The, we have to we have to see it that way. I mean, Bertrand Russell could be an atheist or an agnostic. It takes a Nietzsche to be a nihilist. It it takes a, it takes somebody who's concerned with religious matters, or at least touched by some kind of religious uh, sensibility. So the romantic notion of being a self-made man, quote unquote, or self-made person, turns as the supernova turns into the black hole, turns into the dark romantic notion of self-destruction, nihilistic self-destruction. Okay, those are dark things to talk about, but so are these other things we're going to be talking about. I, I want to uh, look at these two responses, the revival of the sacrificial system in the non-Western world the, and the transformation of enlightenment individuality into postmodern nihilism. I want to see those two things, those two developments in our world. Take a look at them, compare them, contrast them, and then go to the New Testament and see what it see what it says. And the reason that I didn't resist the New York Times article, which I tried to resist, was because it had to do with fame. And I thought, well, hey, I'm, this is what this course we're doing right now has to do with. <laughs> We've decided to look at the issue of fame or notoriety or the attention of others and those questions come into play in both venues that I want to take a look at, both where the, the old sacred system is, is being revived or attempted to be revived, and in the, and in the slide from individualism to postmodern nihilism. And I would just go to these two passages early on in, in uh, Leo Browdy's book, The Frenzy of Renown, and I've read them so far a couple of times, but I want to keep touching on them because they, they give us a little... Um, point of departure. Rowdy says, 
The ignorance of what fame means and what it can bring may be the hallmark of our period. Only with the modern frenzy of renown have so many appeared with little or no comprehension of the contract of eyes and attention by which the audience and the fame seeker balance their desires. And then in another place he says, fame is a contract between the audience and the aspirant, a contract that the fame seeker often knows less about than do those who are asked to be his appreciators. Okay, so here's the, the article that I couldn't resist in the New York Times the other day. The article has to do with fame, violence, crowds, and the sacred. Now, how could I turn that down? You see, this is part... But, but I was going to. This shows I was determined not to be, not to be uh, drawn off course. But I looked at it, and the subtitle of the article made me decide to read it after all. The article is entitled, Palestinian Martyrs, Defiant and So Willing. And it has to do specifically with the suicide bombing attack that took place uh, in... Um, in Israel a week or so ago, killed 19 people, injured 60. But it also has to do with a much larger uh, phenomenon that that uh, is an example of. And the subtitle of the article was Bombers Idolized Like Sports Heroes. So I wanted to read it and see what it said. Now, I'm not reading it specifically for to, to look into Palestinian-Israeli relations but to see something fundamental, to see an anthropological complex in a way. So here's what the article, the article is by Joel Greenberg, and uh, he begins by uh, talking about a rally, which was a rally to celebrate this man, Anwar Sukar, who was the suicide bomber who killed these people. And now I think, it seems like I saw in the press yesterday, the day before, that they now think there may have been two suicide bombers. But in any event, at the time of this story, it was this one. And there was a rally held by the, by the Islamic fundamentalist or the Hamas, uh, you know, r radicals, in honor of him, celebrating him, tur huge turnout, uh, and so on. And and uh, Greenberg describes it as a as a cult of death. He says, "Quote: Just as the bombings have shaken Israel, they have also sent currents of admiration through young men here, who declare that they too are eager to go to paradise, killing Jews." Uh, the, as you know, in Islamic uh, tradition, the radical fundamentalist Islamic uh, sense of things to, to die in the holy war is to go straight to paradise. And then Greenberg says, the generation that in other circumstances might have seen athletes or actors as role models seems to idolize the gunmen and suicide bombers of Islamic holy war and its militant twin Hamas. Their pictures hang in homes and are carried in wallets and on keychains. Walls are covered with graffiti saluting them and with bold drawings of their attacks. At some demonstrations, young men wear shroud-like sheets showing their readiness to die. So here you have a very, a, a very universal pattern, which is the pattern of heroes and uh, the, the desire to emulate the role models and so on. And these role models are, are the suicide bombers. Well, now, the point I tried to make in the weeks when we talked about Elias Canetti's observations about the kingship, this is getting very complicated, but the point I tried to make is the victim and the, and the king are the same person. 
and that the king becomes king by becoming the, the, the sacred executioner. So you have the victim, the sacred executioner, and the, and the hero, the prestigious one, are all the same person. And exactly that is happening in this, in this uh, situation in, in Gaza. The prestigious person, the sacred victim, and the sacred executioner are all one. Greenberg says, uh, the cult of death was on full display at a rally in the town of Khan Yunus honoring another local hero who blew himself up last month in Israel, injuring 13 people. Like an American boy with a pack of baseball cards, a youngster walked through the crowd showing off an envelope full of pictures of dead members of the Qassam Brigades, an armed wing of Hamas. So he collects these pictures like baseball cards. Giant posters of Mr. Roddy, who was the, uh, the suicide bomber in this case, and other fallen gunmen, one of them showing a uniformed fighter stepping on a pile of skulls, covered the stage. Well, okay, what is this? What is going on here? Well, we in the West, you see, because we don't see the slippery slope we're standing on, we look over and we say, well, these are barbarians. This is always what we do. To see that myth from outside of it is always to see it as barbarous. That's why everybody's always calling each other barbarians because we see each other's funny business from outside its, its justifying myth. What's happening is, is a very ancient, very powerful event. Last week I said when uh, after the Gulf War, General Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell were considered to be uh, uh, presidential possibilities. Well, what does that say? Is that is is there any relationship between that and and what's happening in terms of the idolatry of the sacred executioner, the king, the the, the sacred victim, the king, the the uh, sacred executioner? You see what I'm saying? In the West, we have versions of it. And when uh, Browdy, in the second paragraph of his book, quotes from this guy who writes to the paper saying, hey, I've killed six people. When am I going to get my publicity? It's the same. You see what I'm saying? It's a, we're talking about the same phenomena. It's not likely to come up in the West the way it's coming up in the Islamic world. In the Islamic world, it's coming up explicitly religious. It won't happen that way in the West. There are a few places, you know, in the in the mountains of Colorado, there's some... There's some uh, some Christian groups, no doubt, who are buying up uh, missile launchers and stowing away freeze-dried food, you know. But it's very, very marginal in the West. But And that's because in the West it, it becomes increasingly implausible to put any Christian uh, association to this thing, uh, but less so in the East. I was struck, and I know this is one of those things, it's either the wild goose chase or a Holy Spirit, but I was struck as I read the story, for, I was reminded of John Milton's Samson Agonistes. Now, you know the story of Samson. Samson is a suicide bomber. Uh, and he's celebrated for having done this, you see. And so I thought of Samson, and I thought of Milton's Samson Agonistes, which is a a more interesting read in terms of literature at least. So I went to Milton Samson Agonistes to see, well, now for one thing you get uh, Milton uh, is, is writing in a Christian world, but it's, not by, it's by no means a Christian world that has, that has uh, learned to renounce violence or that has, that has any hesitation about 
giving Christian sanction to violence. I mean, it's a world churning. It's the world of the, of the English Civil Wars, which were religious wars. Nevertheless, I, I, went to Samson, I went to Milton's Samson Agonisti, and lo and behold, it reads like this story in the New York Times. Uh, I'm just going to read it to you to give a feel for the, the, the problem. Uh, Samson's father, Manoah, says when he hears that Samson is dead, he says, what caused his death? Samson is blinded and he's in the prison of the Philistines in Gaza and he's a very powerful, strong figure. So they bring him out and have him demonstrate his strength for everybody in the amphitheater. And so it's, and then he pushes the amphitheater, pushes the pillars down and the amphitheater collapses and everybody dies. The messenger says, inevitable cause, because of his death, at once both to destroy and be destroyed, the edifice where all were met to see him, upon their heads and on his own he pulled. So, and then the, the messenger goes on. The building was a spacious theater. Now, I want to emphasize the theatrical aspect of this. Certainly, it's, you don't have to, you, it's, it's everywhere in this story about what's going on in, in, uh, among Islamic fundamentalists. These elaborate social rituals are nothing but theater. Not nothing but theater. They're religious there. But they're theater as well. They're rituals, but they have a very powerful theatrical aspect. And here, I, all I'm asking you to do is notice how theater comes into this. And what's theater? What's Theater is just another word for the unanimous interest of the crowd, the fascination of the crowd, uh, and the power that is generated by that mimetic contagion of the crowd. That's the theater. You know, if, you know I think, that uh, the theater comes historically out of the sacrificial cult. The, the tra Greek tragedy, the word tragedy comes from the word for goat, goat Tragedy means goat play. And a, go a goat died on the sacrificial altar in the, in the ritual that was that preceded tragedy. So what we have, theater is the development of sacrifice, is a, is a s sacrificial ritual played out uh, in a slightly less religiously defined context, only slightly less in the first instance, and then no, no religious context at all. But nevertheless, just to mention that, I, I, I realize I'm getting in over my head here, but what I'm try trying to draw out these, these connections. Okay. Samson brings down the theater, and there's something about the theatrical aspect of this that uh, is significant, especially for Milton. The building was a spacious theater, half round on two main pillars vaulted high, with seats where all the lords and each degree of sort might sit in order to behold. So there is the spectacle. You know, when I talked about uh, Olypius going to the amphitheater to watch the spectacle, or in Luke uh, 23, when it said the crowds came to see the spectacle and what they saw was something else that made them go away beating their breath. The fact that these things are spectacular, that they're theatrical, that they bring the crowd together in some unanimous way is very important. And then it says, uh, the, the messenger is describing this in a very Greek drama fashion. The messenger comes to describe 
this horrendous scene that always happens off stage. The messenger says, At sight of him the people with a shout rifted the air, clamoring their God with praise, who made their dreadful enemy their thrall. So they're, they're in a kind of cathartic or ecstatic unanimity when he walks in. And who is he? He's the powerful other. He's the victim. He's the potential victimizer. He's this sacred figure. And they're, they see him and they, they shout. Remember the shout that came up when, I should compare this to the, I didn't think about it until right now, but I should compare it to that passage in Augustine when he's talking about Olympias is at the amphitheater. Suddenly there's a shout, he opens his eyes and he gets caught up in it. Same kind of event is happening here. Same kind of event, no doubt, was happening in these rituals in Gaza a week ago. You see, the same thing. The spectacle, the unanimity, the... uh, the frenzy, the ecstasy, the, the religious charge to the whole thing. Because here it says, they clamoring, they rifted, their, they rifted the air with a shout, and then clamoring their God with praise, who made their dread, dreadful enemy their thrall. So it's all religious. So religion, social unanimity, catharsis, the victim, you know, the whole thing is there. I know you think I'm a broken record, but it's, I think it's true, so I'm just trying to bring it out. He, then the messenger goes on, He, patient but, but undaunted, where they led him, came to a place, and what was set before him, which without help of eye might be assayed, to heave, pull, draw, or break, he still performed with all with uh, incredible, stupendous force, none daring to appear antagonist. So they just, he was on show. So here's, uh, here's Samson, you know, like the karate guy breaking the two-by-fours. Let's see Samson do this. Let's see Samson do that. And so on. And the crowds are going wild. You know. He's performing. He's a performer. And the audience, the relationship, Browdy says, the relationship between the, the famous one and the audience is one we haven't really understood very well. So I'm just trying to bring that up. And then, of course, Samson, as you know, takes it, says, I have to have a rest. He puts his hand on the two pillars. He pushes them apart. The whole thing falls down. And uh, the, the, uh, uh, the messenger says uh, he pulled down destruction and it fell upon him. And then the chorus sings, O dearly bought revenge, yet glorious. Same chorus is singing. In, this is the chorus singing just outside Gaza in Milton's poem. Same chorus is singing just outside Gaza in real life, you see, uh, several hundred years later. Same chorus was singing back when the, back when Samson was, uh, the story of Samson was, uh, was emerging. You see what I'm saying? The chorus, O oh, dearly bought revenge yet glorious, now liest victorious among thy slain self-killed, not willingly but tangled in the fold of dire necessity, and so on and so forth. Same kind of thing. The suicide bomber. You see, this we couldn't try to untangle the skeins in the story. But all I'm trying to get you to do is look at fame, theater, performance, victim, uh, prestigious one, uh, crowd frenzy. And there you have it. There you have the makings of the old sacrificial system one way or another. Samson's father says, now you get the other side, 
which is after, for example, in the Gaza story, the contemporary Gaza story, after the suicide bombers, they have these great celebrations of them. They're pictures, huge pictures of them, and great uh, elaborate festivals celebrating their glorious deed. Okay, Samson's father in Milton's poem says, To Israel honor hath left, and speaking of his son, he says, To Israel honor hath left and freedom. But And that's what the Hamas people are saying about Palestine or Islam. To Israel honor hath left and freedom. To him and his father's house eternal fame. Let us go and find the body where it lies soaked in his enemy's blood. And from the stream with lavers of pure and cleansing herbs wash off the clotted gore and fetch him hence with silent obsequy and funeral train home to his father's house. There will I build him a monument and plant it round with shade of laurel evergreen and branching palm with all his trophies hung and acts enrolled in copious legend or sweet lyric song, thither all valiant youth resort, and from his memory inflame their breasts to matchless valor and adventures high. The words could apply exactly to what went on in Gaza last week. Now, if I go back to the newspaper article, it says, it's a very weak analysis. The, news, the newspaper article gives us the typical kind of how do we make sense of this, okay? So it says, the Greenberg says, and I'm not taking anything away from Greenberg. I'm, he's, he's just reporting on how these things are usually uh, analyzed. He says, such worship of heroic death first spread here in the late 80s when the Palestinian uprising began and many young men witnessed daily bloodshed during the street clashes with Israeli soldiers. Well, he says that this worship of heroic death first spread here, but he doesn't say anything about where it came from. This worship of heroic death wasn't invented when certain events took place in Palestine uh, in the 80s. You see what I'm saying? How can we ever understand it if we try to understand it in those terms? We can't, because then we'll say, well, if we only, if we could only have different events happening in the 80s, this wouldn't be a problem. It's not true. It, you see what I'm saying? It, it, we don't see the depth of the problem. No doubt we should have done things different in the 80s. I mean, there's, that's always true. But what's going on can't be explained in those terms. And then he says, in recent months, support for anti-Israeli attacks was fueled by growing frustration at the lack of change in living conditions under Palestinian self-rule and by anger at Israel's continued presence in the Gaza Strip and its control of the area's borders. Anger at those things is perfectly natural. It's, it's probably justified and so on, but it, you can't explain it that way. You see, we want to explain it in terms of some kind of political or social thing that we can manipulate, but it's something much more profound. Those are occasions for the outbreak of this. They're not the causes. The causes go very, very deep, and we can never deal with the causes by dealing with those surface questions. It reminds me of uh, Eisenberger talking about the manhunt in Europe, and when he, in his epilogue, when he talks about the German politicians hemming and hawing, and he says they 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 tell their constituents that uh, that uh, what we have to do is find more leisure activities for these arsonists and murderers, because. 
you see that he's mocking it. He's saying they're still trying to solve this problem as though it's a social political problem. It is a social political problem, and work ought to be done on those levels. But if you if that's the only analysis you have, you will never deal with it because it is a religious problem. It's the problem of what kind of religion people are going to have. You know, uh, the 21st century was going to be religious one way or another. Is it going to be religious in a primitive sense? Is, relig- is primitive religious uh, revival going to be the form that religion takes? Or will it be something else? And one of the forms of primitive religious revival, lest we in the West get smug, is postmodern nihilism, which is our version of the same disease. It's an it's a individual uh, version of the same disease. It has many of the same features, and that's the point I want to make here in just a minute. Anyway, the point here is that the analysis continues to be at the level of the, the social sciences that we have some uh, grasp on, but it doesn't go deep enough. As a matter of fact, Greenberg uh, interviews two uh, Palestinian social scientists. Uh, one is the, a psychiatrist at Gaza's only community health, uh, mental health program, and he says uh, the glorification of death is a sign of depression and despair, and that's what you would expect a psychiatrist to say. Can we, can we, you see what I'm saying? Can that be understood in terms of depression and despair? People have, get depression and despair all the time. Do, uh, do they become suicide bombers? What, you see what I'm saying? And then the, uh, the, the director of that same program uh, ha- has, uh, has this to say about it. Quote, it's an act of ultimate control. You control your death, you control your life, you control your environment, and you decide when to die, end quote. That's his analysis of the thing. This is the sort of thing that passes all over the place when we try to see that's why we, we're like the, the blind man and the elephant something's going on we say oh it's this or it's that it's, it's fundamentally a religious problem and we do not want to deal with it in terms of religion it's explicitly religious in uh, among the Islamic fundamentalists it's explicitly religious in uh, in some Hindu Islamic uh, tensions it's explicitly religious in Northern Ireland. It's explicitly religious in, in Bosnia. In many of those places, religion is simply an excuse for what's going on. But it's religious in the anthropological sense in every one of those places. So, okay. Now, what I'd like to do, while you still have in mind some of the features of this problem as it's expressed in terms of the revival of the primitive sacred, I want to turn to... to uh, postmodern nihilism and see if some of those same features don't show up. And I think they do. And I think this will help us understand the overall nature of this crisis. Those of us in this room, by the way, and most of our friends are outside of both of these venues that I'm trying to look at here today. One is the revival of primitive sacred and one is postmodern nihilism. So we're able to see them both with a little bit of clarity. People caught up in them aren't able to, uh, but uh, and we're like I say, I don't think we're we're uh, in danger of being caught up in them. We shouldn't discount the possibility, by the way. But uh, I don't think we're in terrible danger of being caught up in them. But I think to understand them will help us understand our situation and especially the situation of the world that we live in. And if we look from outside at what's happening in fact in contemporary Gaza, what was happening 
in a literary way in Milton's Gaza, in his Samson Agonistes, if we look at that from the outside, we could easily say that these, these uh, suicide bombers and Samson were desperately sacrificial. I have a reason for referring to it as desperately sacrificial because I want to remind you of, a, of an article that I quoted early last year, I suppose it was, last spring, after the suicide death of a rock music star whose name is Kurt Cobain. Cobain was the lead singer for what's called an alternative rock band, the name of which is Nirvana, and he sang songs of total desperation, total nihilism, and finally he killed himself. And the New Yorker ran an article about him shortly after he committed suicide. And in the article, by the way, the article, you know, Generation X is the generation that's experiencing this postmodern nihilism the, the most profoundly. Uh, the highest incidence of postmodern nihilism is in Generation X. And the highest incidence of, its, of it is it being experienced by the rock musicians of Generation X. So they're the, in terms of uh, at-risk group of postmodern nihilism, the rock musicians of Generation X. It's a very high-risk occupation. Now, what is their occupation? Their occupation is fame, crowd contagion. Uh, you see what I'm saying? We begin to have some of the same elements in play. And Browdy says the relationship, the, con the underlying contract between the fame seeker and the crowd is one that we don't understand, says Browdy who approaches this from a purely so social point of view, not an anthropological point of view, but it's absolutely true. And it's just as true in the world that is, that is uh, beginning to be so colored by postmodern nihilism as it is in the world of the where the primitive sacred is arising. So you get some of these same ingredients. In any event, the New Yorker did a piece on the suicide of Kurt Cobain, and it, the, the title of the piece was Generation Exit. So now there's a little play on the word here, you see. But you, you see, in the Generation X, you get a little bit of the hint of nihilism. and Generation Exit, you get the, uh, the suicidal potential. And in the article, the uh, New Yorker writer Alex Ross referred to Cobain as, quote, desperately individualistic. And that's why I wanted to refer to what's going on in the Islamic fundamentalism as desperately sacrificial. The, the suicide bomber is desperately sacrificial, and so are all his adulators. So is the whole, you know, the whole social phenomenon is that way. Uh, Samson and everything that he represents is desperately sacrificial. That is to say, knowing somehow that some kind of that some kind of very bold public sacrificial event is required. Now, Kurt Cobain killed himself at the peak of his fame. And Samson killed himself at the peak of his fame. And these people in, in Gaza, who uh, the suicide bombers, become instantly famous. So here you have fame, suicide, murder, crowd contagion in both venues. That's the point I want to bring out. So he refers to 
so the New, York, New Yorker uh, writer refers to Cobain as desperately individualistic. And then he says, he thought he could take the road less traveled and then persuade everyone to follow him. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. The New Yorker article ends with the, with the journalist saying, killing himself as and when he did, Cobain at least managed to deliver a final jolt to the rock world he loved and loathed. Now think of Samson. Now he didn't love him, you see. But there's, in other words, we're still talking about the contract between the fame seeker and the audience, the fine print of which is just beginning to be legible. You see what I'm saying? As soon as we move into these areas where we're not in the mainstream, where we're, or we're going to the opera, you know, or something like that, we're out into these areas where other things are happening, where the religious dimension is reasserting itself. In, in one area, reasserting in the, in, in the old primitive format, and in another area, the postmodern nihilistic reassertion. But you get the same thing. It's crowds, it's the fame seeker, it's the need for a victim, it's the link between fame and death. All of that suddenly begins to reemerge in both those venues. You see what I'm trying to say? And we have to understand this is a religious phenomenon. Okay, now let me just do a little comparison here. First of all, let me go back in time to something Browdy talks about in his book. And it's, it's a early, you could say early, things are moving so quickly. It's an early form of this same uh, postmodern nihilism. One could find very vivid forms of it in Dostoevsky and other places, you know. But here uh, we're, ha we're talking about it in an American context. And specifically... Browdy talks about uh, the suicide. He has a section later on in this book where he talks about the high incidence of suicide among celebrities, particularly in the post-war period, Hemingway and so on. And he, he talks about a number of these figures. And there's one passage I just want to read to you because it's, it echoes some things that, we need, that we're going to be talking about here. And it is the novel Mr. Roberts was written by Thomas Hegan after World War II, published in the late 40s. And as you know, it's a story about a, a, uh, a very virtuous lieutenant who who's contrasted to this tyrannical captain of a Navy cargo ship. And here's what uh, Browdy says. Roberts was a leader. This is the, the novel itself. Roberts was a leader, the narrator says at one point, quote, who is followed blindly because he does not look back to see if he is being followed, end quote. Let me just go back to Kurt Cobain for a second. The New Yorker writer says, quote, he thought he could take the road less traveled and then persuade everyone to follow him. Okay, back to Mr. Roberts. He was blindly followed because he did not look back to see if he was being followed, end quote. You begin to see something going on here? The relationship between fame and the audience? So then Browdy says, but in his unconcern for the audience, Mr. Roberts in the novel, in his unconcern for the audience, Roberts also stood in contrast to the needs of his creator, Thomas Higgins, an author swept up in the post-World War, post War II fascination with any young writer who could make sense of the war and the world it had helped engender. The example of Roberts for Higgins 
embodies the assurance that self-integrity and self-approval are possible somewhere. But Roberts remains an ideal figure. After the shouting was over, after the novel and the play had celebrated one character's selfless lack of interest in an audience, what could Hagen do next to keep that audience's interest in his work, his person, and his being? How do I go on? He asked Bud Schulberg, who had a pre precocious success with his novel What Makes Sammy Run at the beginning of World War II. And Schulberg gives him some pragmatic advice. But when the spiritual conflict is so acute, advice is hardly enough. A few weeks later, Hagen was dead in his bath from an overdose of pills. Well, what does this have to do? All I, all I want to call attention to is this... What makes Mr. Roberts so fascinating, obviously, for the author is his unconcern for the audience. See, he's not looking back. And, you know, the country music song, I, uh, I was looking back to see if you were looking back to see if I was looking back. But here's one who isn't. And therefore, he's followed completely because he, ha you see, he emanates no, no self-doubt. That's, that's the ideal figure. The notion of being uninterested in what the audience is thinking is the ideal notion. But it didn't hold up for the author of that, uh, of that particular myth. Now, I, I keep want to go... Uh, there's so many things I want to go back to here. Let me try to keep them all together so I don't lose track of it. One more uh, observation, contemporary observation, and this is an article that just appeared a couple weeks ago in the New York Times. It's a review of... Uh, of a concert, it was actually a concert to raise money for the pro-abortion uh, movement, raised $100,000. And there were various performers, uh, one of these are interesting uh, aside issues really, but the various performers, one of whom was, uh, was um, Liza Germano, and the article says, Germano opened the concert with an obsessive self-pitying song summed up by, uh, by her final lyrics, quote, I am everyone's victim. And so on. So you get that's so typical of the modern world. We have to factor that in some other discussion, but the, I thought it was an interesting aside. So what I wanted to look at here is Pearl Jam, which was the lead uh, group or one of the lead groups in this uh, in this concert, and the and the lead singer is Eddie Vedder. And the New, and New York Times uh, uh, writer says. Uh, Vitor's lyrics are about estrangement and betrayal, about memories of child abuse, and about suicidal despair. At the benefit concert, he sang tales of isolation and bitterness, musing, quote, cannot find the comfort in this world. His face scrunched into anything but a smile, his body tense. Vitor, the article goes on, is a perfectly conflicted figure, a man heroically refusing to be a rock hero, shouting, quote, this is not for you to sold-out audiences. This is not for you. All I'm asking you to do is see these little threads of connection here. Mr. Roberts is the one who f is followed blindly because he does not look back to see if he is being followed. Um, Kurt Cobain, the New Yorker writer says of Kurt Cobain, he thought he could take the road less traveled and then persuade everyone to follow him. And Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder sings, shouts, this is not for you to sold-out audiences. What is going on? Well, and also the, the uh, uh, Eddie Vedder is singing these songs which are 
which are on the edges of postmodern nihilism, estrangement, bitterness, uh, meaninglessness, uh, and so on. What Browdy says of the high incidence of post-war celebrity suicide is essentially true of the Islamic fundamentalist. He says, quote, artistic suicide, which is his word for talking about the celebrity suicide, artistic suicide, especially the suicide of someone who has tried to achieve recognition for his or her work, is always to some degree a staging of that desire, the desire for recognition, as well as a purgation of it. In a world without much sainthood, suicide confers transcendence. It is an assertion of the self, but one that seems not selfish, but selfless. All of Every word of that, just about, could be said of the Islamic suicide bomber. And then Browdy goes on. Suicide, in the 20th century, takes on more than a touch of theater. And then we get the aspect of theater again. It's, it's both the last act and the bringing down the curtain, but it's a, still a theatrical event. It has, as we know from so many suicides, I mean, there are, don't, don't misunderstand, I don't want to talk about something as terrible as suicide in a flippant way, but uh, what the point Browdy makes is that suicide is a, has a theatrical quality in our world. Well, it certainly has a theatrical quality in the world of, of uh, Samson Agonistes and in the world of a fundamentalist uh, uh, suicide bomber and in the world of Kurt Cobain, etc. You see? A couple of last comments from Browdy, and then I want to turn to the uh, New Testament and the New Testament tradition. Browdy says, Suicide is the final act of cohesion, by which I think he means the final attempt to stabilize a destabilizing situation. He says then, quote, the more public the act, the more famous the person, the more sacramental and ritualistic. You see, the more public and the more famous, the more sacramental and ritualistic. Again, you get that hint of religion in that. What suicide seems to offer, Browdy goes on to say, is, quote, a glorious death that forever fixes one in the posture of heroic assertion. Only then might the unprecedented singularity to which one aspires be maintained. Well, that's, you know, so all of these things apply in both contexts. Anyway, I hope, now I want to get to what I wanted to get to. Looking back over that messy thing I just went through, what I want to say about it is there are all of these interconnections between these two forms of, if you will, sacrality, two sacralizing systems. One, you could say postmodern nihilism is a sacralizing, but it's taking place in an utterly desacralized world. But it's still sacralizing in some, in some deep sense of the term. It's still religious. Nihilism is still a religious phenomenon. It's a still... Uh, it's a form of transcendence. It's the religious experience of meaning of meaninglessness, and it's and it's the witnessing to that meaninglessness. Uh, suicide in in the postmodern nihilistic sense is a witnessing to meaninglessness. 
and in the and in the revival of the primitive sacred, it's a witnessing to the to the sacred system, whatever it is. Okay, I would say in general, those are the two responses to the modern crisis. Even though most of us are, thank God, somewhere in the middle and not being uh, immediately threatened by either one of them. Now, is there something else? What Girard says of the old sacred system in general is, quote, there is not one element of this distorted mysticism which does not have its luminous counterpart in Christian truth. And I think that's true in both venues, the, the old sacred system and in the postmodern nihilistic one. You won't believe this. It's true. But how else could this have happened, really? This week, not only did I see this article about the, the Islamic fundamentalist, and not only did the, the, the Samson Agonistes thing pop into my head, and I went back to my, my uh, notes on that, but I also happened to be reading le the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, which sounds like I'm a much more erudite guy than I really am. I don't know why. I just happened to be reading them. And in there, Ignatius of Antioch was taken from Antioch to Rome and fed to the lions. And when he was in Rome, in prison, waiting to be fed to the lions, he wrote to the Christians in Rome, who were all in a tizzy about this, appropriately so, and were not only praying for him, but were try trying to think of some way to get him released and so on. And An Ignatius of Antioch wrote to them. Now, there's some parallels here that I won't you know, bore you by drawing out, but they're here. You'll probably see them. He's sitting in the prison of a Roman amphitheater, and he's about to be fed to the... He's one of the ones who, when he walks out, the crowds roar. You see, it's the same. You get the same pattern in a way. And he's writing, anticipating this, he's writing to the Romans. He says, The only prayer I would have you offer on my account is that I be given sufficient inward and outward strength to be as resolute in will as in words and a Christian in reality instead of only in repute. Though once I have the reality, I can have the repute too. So he doesn't, he's not trying to do this in obscurity because to die the way he's going to die is to be a martyr. The word martyr means to witness to a truth. Now, when Kurt Cobain commits suicide, he's witnessing to, a, to, the, to the religious truth of his life. When the Islamic fundamentalists perform one of these suicide bombing attacks, they're witnessing to the truth. They are, they are regarded as martyrs. So he's about to be martyred. And he said, all I want to do is do this the way Christ would do it. And then he says, for good does not reside in what our eyes can see. Now this next little sentence it's not exactly germane to what we're talking about here, but it's unbelievably profound, I think. He says, The good does not reside in what our eyes can see. The fact that Jesus Christ is now within the Father is why we perceive him so much the more clearly. Now, that's a deep insight. 
that, that's the insight that modern biblical exegetes have avoided. The idea that we could get at the historical Jesus and that, that, and that having gotten at the historical Jesus, we would be getting at the source of Christianity overlooks that insight. The fact that Jesus Christ is now within the Father is why we perceive him so much the more clearly. This is why Paul could understand what Jesus represented. He didn't see him. He saw him in the Father, you might say, to use uh, uh, Ignatius's terminology. And then he goes on, for the work we have to do is no affair of persuasive speaking. Now, how do you think I feel when I read that? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my, my, my. <laughs> For the work we have to do is no affair of persuasive speaking. Christianity lies in achieving greatness in the face of a world's hatred. Before I go on with uh, Ignatius of Antioch, let me quote this from Gerard. Here, according to Gerard, is how the revelation breaks in on the world. And it's in expressed in a general sense. It's this, way, it's this way, quote, The logos of love puts up no resistance. It always allows itself to be expelled by the logos of violence, but the expulsion is revealed in a more and more obvious fashion. But by the same process, the logos of violence is revealed as what can only exist by expelling the true logos and feeding upon it in one way or another. End quote. That's how it's revealed. By, it's from uh, Things Hidden. I don't have the site here, but I have it. Now, in other words, when Jesus, I always think of it this way, when Jesus confronts John, or John confronts Jesus, and John says, are you going to fish or cut bait? And Jesus says, in a sense, what Jesus' critique of John is, John the Baptist, I think is, he says, when, the logos of when you confronted the logos of violence, you got into a food fight. You see? You got into a snarl. And Herod won. And it didn't... And so, and so you're, you gave your life, but you didn't break the mechanism. In order to break and expose the mechanism, one has to offer no resistance. And that goes back to the Second Isaiah, the suffering servant in Second Isaiah. How do you break that mechanism? You offer no resistance. And now we have to, it's in light of that that we have to understand what martyrdom means. From Gerard, let's go back to Ignatius of Antioch. Continuing his letter to the Romans, he says, I must implore you to do me no such untimely kindness. In other words, don't, don't try to intervene and, and so on. Pray, leave me to be a meal for the beast, for it is they who can provide my way to God. I am his wheat, ground fine by the lion's teeth to be made purest bread for Christ. And this, of course, is when everybody runs for the psychiatrist. Say, oh, God, we've got another one here, really a wacko. See, what is he talking about? But uh, wrong again, wrong again. Very graphic language, but still, notice what he's saying. He goes on, better still, incite the creatures to become a sepulcher for me. 
Let them not leave the smallest scrap of my flesh so that I need not be a burden to anyone after I fall asleep. When there is no trace of my body left for the world to see, notice now, for the world to see, when there is no scrap of left of my body for the world to see, then I shall truly be Jesus Christ's disciple. The reference here, I think, is to the empty tomb. What does the empty tomb represent? If you go to the Islamic fundamentalist, it's the funeral event that is the locus for the regeneration of the system. It's that, it's that funeral celebration of the suicide bomber, martyr, that is the religious regeneration of the whole thing. And to have an empty tomb, we have to understand what the empty tomb means in its, in its symbolic and, and anthropological sense. It means you go there and there's nothing there. There's no occasion for these kind of rituals to take place. You see, it's, it leaves that open space. It can't happen. And so when Ignatius says, let all my flesh be eaten, so that there will be nothing left for the world to see. Then I'll be like Christ. I'll leave an empty tomb. There will be to have no flesh left, and to have an empty tomb means, I, I would say anthropologically, it means there's no occasion for vengeance, for revenge. The martyr we think of martyr. The reason so many historical causes like their martyrs is because their martyrs give them fire them with this this uh, determination to, to have vengeance on the ones who killed them. And it's precisely the lack of that that distinguishes Christian martyrdom. Christian martyrdom, I would say, is never martyrdom if the effect of the martyrdom is to fire those uh, who, who identify with its victim with the determination to avenge his death. As soon as that determination is there, you know that what Ignatius prayed for has not happened. Ignatius says, all my flesh should be gone. There will be nothing left to see, an empty tomb, no provocation for revenge. In other words, the whole thing is transformed. And this is what you, what's so remarkable, uh, for example, in the New Testament. The idea that we must avenge Jesus' death is completely absurd. It's simply absurd. Not that the anti-Semites didn't, uh, didn't, didn't uh, find some, you know, looking back, try to, try to generate something like that out of it. But it's simply not there. So, Ignatius of Antioch. So, I happened to be reading that. So, I, I mean, what can I say? It, it, uh, I felt I had to bring it. Here's what I really want to get to. Finally, I want to get to this. The Vine and Branches Discourse in the Gospel of John. And I want to read the Vine and Branches Discourse as a kind of ontological apocalypse. That's, that's not a, Apocalypse is not bad. In the biblical tradition, apocalypse is a way of underscoring what's at stake so that a choice, so that, a, that an intelligent choice can be made. Now, that's just, faith is not an intelligent choice in the ordinary sense in which we say it, but it is an intelligent choice as well. I mean, it's not a it's not a completely irrational, emotive choice. 
There is a, there's an element of intelligibility in the choice that faith makes. And the presence of the apocalyptic is, I think, essential to informing that choice so that we know what's at stake. And so for me, suddenly, I never thought of it that way before, but for me suddenly, the Vine and Branches discourse is, a, is, an, is an ontological apocalypse. Here's how it goes. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Now, then I'll, I'll continue, but we had to stop and see. When he says vine, he's, he's invoking a very powerful image in the biblical tradition, which is the vine is the people of Israel. It's the root of Jesse. It's the ethnicity and culture and religion of the uh, of of uh, the Jewish tradition. You see, Psalm eighty says there was a vine. You uprooted it from Egypt. To plant it, you drove out other nations. You cleared a space where it could grow. It took root and filled the whole country. End quote. Now that's. In today's terms, that's pretty powerful, you know, because that's what the Palestinians are complaining about. You see what I'm saying? The 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 Israeli settlements and so on. These are ancient problems. They don't. So you, in a way, you're getting a biblical, ancient biblical reverberation of of this contemporary contemporary problem. You see, what's the vine? What's the what are our roots really? You see, and if our roots are ethnic ethnic, cultural, religious in the conventional anthropological sense, then we'll end up in the same mess that the Islamic fundamentalists are in or that Samson was in or that... You see what I'm saying? When Jesus says, I'm the vine, he's changing everything. This is, this is the Christ of John's Gospel saying, this is a new root system, so to speak. Your ontological roots now can be in me. And then he goes on to say, I'm the true vine and my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears no fruit, he cuts away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes to make it bear the more. Jesus then says, you, he's speaking to his disciples, he says, you are pruned already by means of the word that I have spoken to you. In other words, the gospel itself, the gospel revelation itself, is the pruning device. And this is what I would say about the Western world. To some degree, we have been pruned already. You see what I'm saying? We, are, we have been influenced by that revelation. And to some degree, we have been pruned already. And then he goes on to say, Make your home in me as I make mine in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit all by itself, but must remain part of the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. This is the, one of those passages where I think 500 years from now people will understand it and sense how, how unbelievably powerful and relevant it is. But for us, we're still a little vague. We still see it through a glass darkly. A branch cannot bear fruit all by itself. Tell that to Kurt Cobain, who was desperately individualistic. You see what I'm saying? We have it in our heads 
that we're, we can live without that root. We know we don't want to be rooted in the old system. That's what Jesus says, I'm the true vine. We know that the old vine system goes back into uh, ethnicity, culture, narrow-mindedness, uh, uh, in-group, etc., etc., all of that stuff, all of that which we, we walked away from, we think we did, uh, in the last 400 years of Western history. We think of ourselves individual. We don't want to be part of that. And we think we can just be on our own. We think we can cut off this connection to the, to the rootstock that made our individuality possible with no consequences. And the, as soon as we really cut it off, you see, we can pretend to have cut it off and still be drawing a little sap from it all the while. But if we ever really successfully cut it off, we're into postmodern nihilism and, uh, and uh, all of that. So, this is, and this is bedrock Christianity. This is, not, this is not esoteric Christianity. This is Paul saying, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. This is bedrock Christianity, intersubjectivity. See, this is the hypostatic existence that Christianity is talking about. It's a form of uniqueness that's much more profound than the conventional idea of individuality, but it's not autonomous. It's hypostatic. So Jesus then says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me, with me in him, bears fruit in plenty. But cut off from me, you can do nothing. And nothing, you know, is what the word nihilism means. And for me, this is a tremendously powerful thing. Cut off from me. In other words, that gospel has already pruned us has already, in a way, if you will, not exactly following the metaphor, but in, if you'll allow this, has already informed us that we cannot be part of that old rootstock, which is ethnicity, conventional religion, conventional culture, etc. We can't. And now we're being told that if we cut ourselves off from the true vine, then we will end up in nothingness. We will end up where humanistic individualism is ending up, postmodern nihilism. And then Jesus says, anyone who does not remain in me is like a branch that has been thrown away. He withers, and these branches are collected and thrown on the fire, they are burned. You see, the withering, first of all, there's several things here. Every word, I think, is relevant. The withering, becoming becoming the dry tender for some conflagration. He withers and then is gathered. You see? Because once these dry tenders are floating around, they are gathered up in some kind of conflagration and burned away. This is apocalyptic. This is an ap apocalyptic discourse, but it's, I think it's apocalyptic at the level of ontology, if you will. The nature of being, the threat to our world, is that the attenuated connection between our individuality and the New Testament revelation may become so attenuated that it, that it finally ends. And then we will discover the vacuity of our, of our individuality and plunge into that abyss that is postmodern nihilism. Now, the good news is we don't have to do that. The good news is there's an alternative to that. 
It's an alternative that begins by distinguishing itself from the old sacred system. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. In other words, not ethnicity, not culture, not the, the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism, not conventional religion. And it ends by saying, now that you've been freed by this from the old sacred system, if you try to walk away from it, you'll walk into that abyss. But the good news is that there's a very viable, joyful, meaningful, hopeful, promising alternative to all that. It's the promise that I want to emphasize, even though you wouldn't know it from all of that grim stuff that I put out. Anyway, let's go back. Last week, I ended all too abruptly because of time typical of me. You know, I ran out of time, and then the thing that I really wanted to focus on at the end, which was uh, what the gospel gives us in terms of an alternative to some of our craziness, I didn't really have time to explore it. And it, it stayed with me through the week, and I felt like, well, we should go back to that. So that's what I want to do this morning. And I ended last week on this passage in the 15th chapter of John, which is the vine and branches discourse of John, in which Jesus, the Johannine Jesus, says, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser, uh, you are the branches, uh, uh, if you remain in me, you can bear fruit in plenty, and if you get cut off from me, uh, you will wither and be collected and thrown into the fire and so on. It's easy to read the last part of that in some kind of judgmental way, but I think there's another way of reading it, and that is as a kind of, as I said last week, as a kind of ontological apocalypse, uh, which has nothing to do with a God who's judging and condemning, but with the way things unfold once the old system that the that the uh, that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus reveals and undermines once that system is is gone or or seriously uh, uh, compromised then we're in a in a potentially apocalyptic situation for those of us who continue to behave as though we're still around i'll come back to that of course but in any event i want to I want to go back and try to fill in uh, some of the picture that will help us, I hope, come to this passage in the Gospel of John and feel its, its supreme relevance for our time. So when Jesus talks about the true vine, as I said last week, he's always in the background of this, is, a, is an understanding of the old vine system, the root of Jesse, the, the chosen people, the temple, the law, that whole system. And Jesus, in earlier part of the gospel, had talked about the, the power that is at the center of that system, and he, he referred to that power as this other father, the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning, uh, etc. And there is also, in connection with the vine system, so to speak, that he's announcing in chapter 15, there is his father. His father is at the heart of his ministry at the heart of his revelation 
we say of the Christian revelation that it is the revelation of God through Christ. Uh, it, and, and that God, the dis, what distinguishes the God revealed by Jesus is that he is the father of Jesus. That Je- Jesus experiences that God intimately as father and makes possible that same kind of intimate relationship uh, for others. So, so the first thing to say is that our experience of God is mediated, historically mediated, uh, the old vine system, so to speak, was a form of mediation, the chosen people, the temple, the law, uh, and so on. And Jesus declares in his ministry that that old system is too enmeshed in the old sacred apparatus of culture and religion to be able to carry forward the mediating process because, in fact, uh, the God who's being revealed is a God who Uh, is radically at odds with that old sacred system. And so mediating this God's self-revelation to the world necessarily involves a desacralizing uh, of the old sacred system. And what I've tried to emphasize is that Christianity's unique role is to carry on that desacralization in a religious way. Uh, The world is filled with desacralizing efforts, almost all of which derive from the biblical tradition and almost all of those derive from the Christian tradition. But many of them have, and this is what I want to talk about this morning, many of them have cut off or disclaimed uh, their their biblical or Christian roots and and so are trying to carry out this desacralization in a purely secular way. And, it, and what I've tried to emphasize is it cannot be carried out in a purely secular way. Every purely secular attempt to desacralize it will simply re- result in a new, more modern form of the old sacred system. So it has to be done, I would say, in the way in which the uh, Christian revelation makes possible. So implicit in, in um, Jesus's uh, insistence that he is the true vine, his father is the vine dresser, uh, is that the old vine system is barren and that it was to be replaced by his ministry and what it was revealing. The immediate effect of his ministry and the historical effect of his life and crucifixion was to expose the barrenness of the old religious system and to reveal an alternative to it. And as with so many of these things, we can see a parallel in that passage in the Gospel of Luke that I emphasized a couple of weeks ago, where at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, the crowd that had gathered for the spectacle, keep these words in mind because they'll come back today as we speak of other things, the crowd that had gathered for the spectacle saw, theoria, what had happened, turned and went home beating their breast. In other words, it, the, the event, the scapegoating event that in ancient times would have brought the culture together had exactly the opposite effect. And that, in a nutshell, is the historical effect of the, of the, of the crucifixion. It begins to, it goes right to the heart of the old sacred system, the old system of what uh, Hammer and Kelly calls the generative mimetic scapegoating system. It goes right to the heart of that system. And it pulls out, pun intended here, the linchpin, which means that from now on, gradually, of course, 
the system we use to create unanimity will in fact destroy it. It's a very gradual process. It doesn't happen immediately. We're told that Pilate and Herod became friends after the crucifixion, even though they'd been in enemies before. That's an indication that it worked. For some people, it worked. It continues to work for hundreds and hundreds of years. It still works to some extent in our world, but it doesn't last. It works for the, for the duration of the, of the frenzy that people are caught up in, but it very quickly fades, and the, and the social uh, uh, consensus that it makes possible is, uh, is very fleeting. And when it's gone, it's replaced by a lot of moral misgivings and, and irritability and confusion and so on. Okay, so what I want to do, what I've tried to say over the last few weeks is that we have to, if we want to understand the spiritual problem, we have to understand the ontological problem, or even to back up a little bit, if we want to understand the psychological problem, we have to understand that it's, a, that it's the surface symptom of a spiritual problem. And the, the spiritual problem is fundamentally an ontological problem having to do with the nature of being. And if we want to understand the, the ontological problem, we have to see it in relationship to the anthropological problem. So that's basically what I've been trying to do is bring these interconnections and these roots, what I think are the roots of our present confusion, up to the surface and try to take a look at them.